Well, the next figure in our church history lesson is Charles Finney. Charles Finney. We're kind of going a little bit different direction than the majority of our history lessons have been. This will be probably, really, as far as I can tell, the first figure we've looked at in church history that would be pretty radically different than us in a lot of ways. We did look at John and Charles Wesley together, and those guys, well, um, they're gospel preachers, they're involved in the Great Awakening, close friends with George Whitfield. And they had some theological differences than us, but they were still closer to center than what I believe we'll see in Charles Finney. Um, but there's still a lot we can learn, and it, is, it does seem that the Lord used Charles Finney in, in some way at least. And so we'll just consider his life together and see what we can learn. Before we look into his life, I've got a quote, and we'll read this again and consider it at the end. From 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And hopefully we'll see why that scripture is relevant towards the end. Next, I want to read a quote from Charles Finney. Now, I got to give a disclaimer about this quote. It's a wonderful quote, but the trouble is Charles Finney had a grandson with the exact same name, first, middle, and last name, and his grandson was a Christian author. And so I'm not sure if this quote's from the original Charles Finney or from his grandson, but either way, it's a wonderful quote. He said, A state of mind that sees God in everything is evidence of growth and grace and a thankful heart. Nothing tends more to cement the heart of Christians than praying together. Never do they love one another so well as when they witness the outpouring of each other's hearts in prayer. Charles Finney, and I found that to be a wonderfully true quote, that you never have the greater, a greater intimacy with another Christian than when you pray together and when you bear your soul with one another. So the first question we'll ask is, who was Charles Finney? Charles Finney was born on August 29, 1792 in Warren, Connecticut. Finney was the youngest of nine children and the son of a farming family. He never personally attended college, although he would go on to serve as a college professor himself. Charles Finney would take part in an apprenticeship under a lawyer in pursuit of law, but is reported to have ended his pursuit of law after his own conversion. Now, this is interesting. Finney, it's reported that he was training to be a lawyer. And in this day, you didn't have to go to or didn't have to go to university necessarily to work as a lawyer. You could get in an apprenticeship like many other trades in this day, and you could learn the trade from someone who was skilled in it. And so he was training to be a lawyer under this individual, and then ended up giving up that pursuit after he was converted. Now I'll say this, and I've heard this presented in more than one way. I've heard some historians suggest that Finney was indeed pursuing a career in the legal field, 
and that he was a failure as a lawyer, that he wasn't making any money and he was a failure. And so he gave up his pursuit of law in order to be a minister as kind of something he fell back on. Now, that may be a character assassination that people have given because of some of his theological failures. And so I don't want to give more credit to that than it's due. Um, it could just simply be, as it's reported in some places, that Charles Finney was converted and became a Christian and gave up law. That might be the facts as it is, but either way it is, uh, I just want to make that, that known. So it's kind of uncertain as to whether or not um, what his initial urge into ministry was. At the time of Finney's transition toward, toward ministry, he made a profession of faith that was kind of somewhat dramatic in experience. He grew up going to Baptist churches and Methodist churches. That was his upbringing and experience. And then after his conversion, and as I remember, as I recall, he was actually at a joint meeting that was being held by Baptist and Methodist, and that's where he heard the gospel. And he said the Holy Spirit came upon him and gave him life anew. And then after his conversion, he went on to be mentored under a Reformed Presbyterian minister which is fascinating. He's had influences from Baptist, from Methodist, and this was back in the early stages of Methodism whenever it was very much closer probably to what we would see as biblically true at this point in history. And then he goes on to be mentored as a minister under a Presbyterian. And although he was mentored by this Presbyterian, he found himself opposed to the Presbyterian doctrines of grace and doctrines of God's sovereignty. One interesting fact is that what he would do is this Presbyterian minister, I guess, was a farmer as well. And so the so Finney would work and and provide labor on the farm in exchange for being taught in ministry. That was the relationship he had with this Presbyterian minister. And then Finney would maintain his rejection of the doctrines of grace throughout his life and ministry which would greatly impact his personal view of revival and conversion. Charles Finney would marry three times, and his first two wives died prematurely. And Finney would become known as the father of the Second Great Awakening in America, and then would go on to be greatly involved in ministry and eventually at a university as a professor. So that's who Charles Finney was. The second thing we'll consider is what was the state of the church during the life of Charles Finney. Now, the moral state of the church, or of the church, at least in this nation, at least in the United States, had already been greatly impacted during the Great Awakening, which took place roughly 70 years before Finney started preaching in his evangelistic campaigns, his revival campaigns, that, that really were the center of what's called the Second Great Awakening. That, that took place about 70 years after the First Great Awakening in George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and the Wesleys. And so that influence was st still kind of having its way in the United States of America as it had been, as it had become after the War for Independence. And so there was still a strong religious influence in the nation. Yet, think about this, there had been an entire generation of people who had lived and died between the time of the Reformation, or the, excuse me, the, uh, the Great Awakening, an entire generation, 70 years roughly, of people who'd lived and died since that Great Awakening, and the spiritual condition of the newborn country was beginning to wane. 
And so the revival meetings of Finney were somewhere between 1825 and 1830. So you're looking at roughly 40 to 50 years between the establishment of the United States as its own country. And that's relevant in the life of Finney. One result of the war um, was that it contributed to an American individualism which has continued unto today, growing steadily worse. Now, the thing that the founding of this country got right was the individual rights of people within a nation. That's right. Individual people are made in the image of God and they ought to have certain rights established and given to them, granted to them, recognize that God has given these rights. That's a right thing to think. But it's difficult to maintain the commitment to individual rights without being drawn towards a self-focused approach to religion and life. Do you see the relationship here? Here we're a nation. We fought for our freedom. We got our independence. We're independent. We're no longer under the bondage of those people. We can do what we want to do. And then you see how that translates into the way people view religion. That we're no longer going to be bound by the traditional expectations of those above us. We're our own people. We've got our own wills, our own aspirations. And so it it did kind of greatly impact um, the state of the church in that way. Um, With the spiritual state of the nation on somewhat of a decline and the people inundated with a hyper focus upon self, you can see there was kind of a perfect storm prepared for what would take place in Finney's revivals. That's the state of the church, and I'll hopefully try to show you what impact that had and how Finney was able to really um, succeed, if you want to use that word, how he was able to really make a name for himself in that context. So the third question we ask is, what impact did Charles Finney have upon the church? Now, I'll be honest with you, there are a number of negative impacts that were made upon the church and that continue to be observed in the context of modern Christianity that, were, that came about according to the beliefs and methods that Charles Finney employed. But even still, I believe it's appropriate that we give glory to God for the positive impacts that He made. And so we'll get to the negatives, and I actually believe that we can see more negatives, at least on the church in general, than we see positives in Finney's life. And yet we need to highlight and praise God for the individual salvations that came about from his ministry. Finney is known to have preached at multiple venues, reaching large crowds, and even at one time being the preacher at the largest religious or Protestant venue in the country at the time. So Finney had an incredibly large impact. He was reported to have been a good-looking guy that caught a lot of people's attention, very charismatic, very uh, very good-speaking individual. And in, light of, and in addition to that, he was also a very uh, motivated and zealous and, and really an impressive speaker, as I understand it. So he preached at a number of places, And his understanding of and proclamation of the gospel does seem to be rooted in orthodoxy. Finney, as far as I can tell, believed that Jesus Christ died under the wrath of God for sinners and that salvation comes by faith in Jesus. That's what Finney preached. And so we could say this appears from all that we can see that this was a brother in Christ who loved God and loved the true gospel. So we praise God for that proclamation going forth. With that said, however... There must certainly have been a large number of people who were converted under his ministry, even though he had some wrong ideas. 
And as I said, we praise God for using him as it relates to the individuals. And I could say Finney's impact on the church was more negative than positive. And I think that's true, but probably it's safe to say that the individuals who were converted under him wouldn't say that's true. They would say that they're, they're very thankful for the impact that he had. And I'm wanting to bring glory to God for using him to save some people in that way, even though his theology was extremely poor. And I'll say one more positive thing before we transition into the negative that I read an occasion where they were having a revival meeting and Finney was in some room that he was staying at near the revival place, wherever they were going to meet. And they came to fetch Finney because it's time to start their services and he's nowhere to be found. Well, they go to get him and he's in his room and he's praying. And he told the people he refused to go and speak at this meeting until he had a sense that the Lord was with him. And as a matter of fact, there are many wonderful things that Finney wrote and said concerning prayer and likely the quote at the beginning being one of them, which may seem like somewhat of a contradiction in light of his ideas about God's sovereignty and his commitment to prayer. It just seems like they don't really line up. But nevertheless, I want to honor that particular aspect of him, that he was convinced he needed the Lord's hand on him um, if he was going to impact people at all. But honesty compels us to address a number of things that Finney impacted the church with, which have proved to be especially disastrous. Finney was violently opposed to the scriptural teaching of God's sovereignty. He rejected almost outright. He, he completely rejected the traditional, we could say traditional by this point, but the Orthodox Presbyterian view that God was sovereign, particularly in salvation, Finney rejected that. And he maintained more of a Pelagian view of man's free will. Don't remember who Pelagius was? We were talking about Augustine and his stand for the truth of the church. Pelagius taught that man is born basically without sin, that we're not born in a state of sin, that we're born neutral, and that man's will has the power to basically be good enough and we can attain unto God ourselves. That was Pelagius. Well, um, Finney did adopt a what we might call semi-Pelagian view of man's free will. Because of this, Finney is credited with the invention, and this may be the single most bad thing that came from Charles Finney. He's credited with the invention of the altar call. Surely you've all seen an altar call at some point or another. They're very common in Protestant churches in our country today. It's the idea that the man stands up and preaches and talks about Jesus and the cross. And then at the end of his message, he says, okay, now if you'd like to come and become a Christian, come forward here, come to the altar, come to Jesus. And then when they get forward, then you lead them through a prayer and you pronounce them saved. That's the idea of an altar call. And the trouble with this is a number of things, but basically Finney mastered the art of giving men and women an outward external hoop to jump through that they could point back to and say, I went forward at the end of the service, so I know I'm saved. And the trouble with that is that if you're looking at what you did in coming forward or a prayer that you prayed or anything that you did, you're not looking to Christ. If Jesus and what he accomplished is not the source of your faith, then you're having a wrong understanding of things. And so he is credited with the invention of the altar call. And, and I don't necessarily assume that Finney had bad motives. I mean, it'd be easy to, I could tell you firsthand in preaching to people for the, pretty consistently for the last four years that there are times when I wish there was something I could do to get people that I think and suspect may not know Christ 
Give them something to do to, to, to follow Christ. But the Bible is very clear that the thing that they're called upon to do is to repent and believe the gospel. It's not to jump through an external hoop. And so he found a way to give people something to do that would help them to identify and feel confident in a profession of faith, whether they'd been born again or not. And many churches today would have no conception of evangelism at all, apart from using altar calls and appealing to what is known as decisionism. Now, I'll say this, and I know this firsthand. I, a church I interviewed at before coming here, when I got done preaching, whenever I preached there, they asked if I would give an invitation. And I said, well, sure. And so I preached, and I believe there's an invitation to Christ explicit in every gospel sermon. That we're, I call people, come to Christ, trust in Christ. But at this particular venue, I got to the end of the sermon and I said, OK, now I want to tell you all something. There are people in this church who care about you, who would like to talk to you if you feel like God's working on your heart. But I said, I want to be very clear that coming forward and walking this aisle is not going to save you. Only Jesus can do that. But if you want to talk to somebody about it. So I basically made up my own version of an altar call because that's what they were wanting me to do. But the point is, whenever after I finished that. I went to sit down and somebody cried out, are we not going to have an altar call? And a man stood up in the church, the chairman of the search committee, and said, well, we are or I'm leaving. And see, what that man thought was the altar call in his mind. That's how you invite people to Jesus. And I trust his motive was sincere. He wanted people to come to Christ, but he was employing and they employ a very unbiblical method in the way that you try to get people to do something to feel saved. Finney's revivalism, that's another term that was coined during this time, this preaching revivalism through altar calls would become the standard expectation for many evangelicals in the years to come. One most notable figure that we'll go on to consider at another time is Billy Graham. Employed this same method. Stand up and preach the gospel and then tell people, if you want to be saved, come down here, repeat after me, pray this prayer and you'll be saved. It's very wrong and it's not biblical in any sense of the term. Now, it may be true that God used Charles Finney to bring the gospel to many people. And what I am prepared to acknowledge is that it is possible that God did a mighty awakening in the hearts of many people. And it was in the context of Finney's altar calls. Here's the problem, though. You had many other people, young preacher boys growing up, looking at Finney saying, this is how I'm successful. This is how I get people to respond is employing this method. And so they began to imitate it, even though it wasn't biblical at all. And so now we find that in our day and age, the common expectation is that this is how you get people saved. The problem is, and you can find this historically, that Finney and all the places he preached, that in these venues, there were often as many people left with as false converts as truly saved people. People who would come down, walk the aisle, jump through Finney's hoop, and they would announce them saved. And then a short time later, they were back in sin, back in the world. There was no lasting change. They were just overcome by emotion and made a quick decision and did what he said to do with no real gospel impact on their heart. Now, I want to distinguish because, you know, Jonathan Edwards had that same experience. He preached in the first great awakening and saw many people emotionally compelled and coming forward and trying and making decisions. But the difference is Jonathan Edwards identified that. And he wrote a whole book called Spiritual Affections, talking about the reality of our religious affections, where he talks about the difference between truly being born again and just being emotionally compelled in the moment. Edwards sought to address the false converts. 
Finney went on um, repeating the process and leading many people to uh, the belief that they'd been saved when they in reality had not. And his legacy in that regard has not been a good one upon the church. The death of Charles Finney. Charles Finney died at the age of 82 in August of 1875, just before his 83rd birthday. And although wrong about many things, I must confess that Finney does appear to have lived almost his entire adult life committed to gospel ministry in some form. And the point of this engagement in looking at Charles Finney is to be honest about the history of the church. There are many people that you might talk to today, especially in Southern Baptist churches, that if you were to dare even ask them why they do an altar call, they would say, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way Baptists have always done it. That's not true at all. What we find historically, a point in history where this started to happen, and you don't find this sort of activity anywhere in the history of the Scriptures, to be sure. And very, very modern in the life of the church. But it's not my point to beat up on Charles Finney. It's to recognize God used a fallible man and that there are things worthy of our attention in his life positively, but there are also negative things that we need to be aware of. There is something to be said. This is the last point. What can we learn from the life of Charles Finney? There is something to be said about Finney's zeal for souls. And there is always a greater need for God's people to be engaged in evangelizing the lost. And I might even go as far as to say I would rather have a Finney who's going to go and tell people about Jesus and be wrong in his methodology than people who don't say anything. People who are, unafraid, who are afraid to, to engage the lost with the truth. In addition to this, Finney seemed to have a particular emphasis, as I mentioned, on prayer, which is commendable, although somewhat inconsistent with his view of God's sovereignty. And while we can be thankful for those legitimate things that God used Finney for in the life of individuals, perhaps the greatest lesson to learn from Finney comes in this negative form, which is this. The methods we employ in the church, even in our attempts to reach the lost, may have catastrophic implications on future generations. The common modern notion of the carnal Christian is almost certainly a direct result of Finney's approach. Have you heard the reference to the carnal Christian? Do you know what this means? The idea of the carnal Christian is there are a lot of Baptists that believe that once saved, always saved. If you're a Christian, you can't lose your salvation. And they also believe that the way to become a Christian is to walk the aisle, say the prayer, and jump out of the line going to hell into the line going to heaven. And so if you did that at one time in your life, and you're never going to be lost... How do you explain the person who says, who's come forward and made the decision and then abandons the church, abandons uh, the scriptures, abandons Christ, it appears? How do you explain that person? Well, they've come up with the doctrine of the carnal Christian, which says that it's possible for you to be a born again Christian and to live in unrepentant sin with no regard for Christ, no regard for the gospel and still be saved because you walked your aisle, you said your prayer, you did your altar call. And so your soul is secure. This is the way in which these ideas and these methods have had a negative impact upon the church. And so I would recall our attention once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. 
And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's primary emphasis here to the church at Corinth is that he did not try to use his human cunning or his ability to enter into the philosophy, the Greek philosophy of the day. Paul could have done that, but he doesn't. He says, I want your faith to be in God's power, not the ability of men to coerce or manipulate or try to engage with you at some philosophical level. I came to you with the message of Christ crucified, and it's the power of God that saved you and no other explanation. I want your faith in God's power, not the wisdom of men. And what we learn from that in our context with Finney is that, you know, this man who was used, it seems, by God in some ways that he is found to have been trusting or causing people in some way to trust in the wisdom of men or in the, the different schemes or the different things that men told other men to do. That Finney would tell someone, come forward in this way and say that you're saved even if you're not. And we say that we can preach the gospel and call all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. And I can plead with you. Come to Christ right now here today. Come to Him, but you don't have to come down here to do it. You go to Christ by faith, repentance and faith, wherever you're seated as you hear this. And I trust the power of God through that message proclaimed is able to bring about conversion. And there's no need for giving someone an external hoop to jump through. So my prayer is that we would be committed to proclaiming the gospel as it is, without manipulation, without coercion, and to trust the Lord to act in power upon those who hear it. And so with that, we'll go ahead and close this lesson on Charles Finney. Lord willing, next time we'll take up and consider Martin Lloyd-Jones. So I'll be looking forward to that one. I hope you do as well. So if you'll bow with me, we'll pray and then we can gather for corporate prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Lord, it must be true that we all are short-sighted and fail to see things, even important things in our lives. And I, Lord, know, I know that there's a great emphasis of responsibility on those who would preach and minister to others. And I pray, Father, that you would guard us from error, that you would keep me from leaning on the arm of the flesh or what I might be able to cause another person to do. Father, I do genuinely thank you for those who are converted under Finney's ministry. And I pray that Father, in our labors and efforts that we might see a, a fruitful ingathering of souls as the gospel goes forth. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.